Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we are here today with Assad Hader. He is the author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, as well as editor of Viewpoint Magazine. Very cool. Marxist Magazine. How are you doing, Assad? I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Thank you Thanks so for much for coming. Here. We should mention we had your brother on a few shows back. Um, I guess we're working our way through the Hater family. <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, uh, we had him on to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign that seemed to be winning at the time. We were kind of trying to unpack what the campaign all meant, uh, the strategies at work, what it means for the future, and lo and behold, a couple weeks after that, uh, the bottom fell out. And Joe Biden is the not even just the presumptive nominee. It seems like he's going to be the nominee, at least until they replace him with Hillary Clinton at the convention. Oh, boy. I would love to see them. I don't think that they even they would try that. But I don't know. Like, I've given up on trying to predict what the future holds. Assad, did you see that article that came out a couple of days ago on The Hill where it was a political strategist seriously talking about why Hillary Clinton should be his VP pick and why she should take over for him? at the convention i didn't see that what was their case uh their case was that uh joe biden already was a terminally bad candidate <laughs> and now with the tara reed allegations coming out uh he seems kind of dead in the water and that there's one person still who uh has a strong <laughs> democratic base behind them who could quote unquote unite the party and that is of course hill dog and they 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 do note that it might be a little contentious but they say there's really no other option he's got to go for it so it sounds like some serious quote unquote thinkers in the party and you know and strategists are are considering something like that uh, very very interesting are there serious the thinkers in the democratic party uh, definitely scare quotes over serious, but yes. Yeah, that's, that's an open question. Um, man, like as much as I hate Joe Biden, I do think he is a better candidate than Hillary Clinton. And I don't, I don't think he's better than Hillary Clinton. I think he is a terrible person and probably a rapist. But I also think that that does it matter to most of the American electorate? Or if it does matter to them, they're like, that's just how men in power are. There's no point in trying to change it, which will probably feed into some of our discussions about depoliticization. Yeah, I was going to say, would you say those folks are depoliticized around the issue? They might just be. Yeah, yeah. I, so things have changed a lot since uh, we had your brother on, obviously. It feels like a long time ago. It was probably like two months ago, though. There have been uh, a lot of zigzags in like trying to think about this, especially in terms of depoliticization, because for a little while I was like, oh, oops, you know, uh, it looked like all of a sudden uh, unprecedented success in the Bernie campaign. Um, but then the article seemed to become relevant again. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah. 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 You uh, you really owned your brother on that one. I don't, don't, <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> so, yeah, we got owned. We all got owned. Bernie got owned. We all did. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on the postmortem about why, because I feel like a lot of other people have already gone over this territory, you know, to varying degrees of me agreeing with them. But, like, what what happened here? Why did Bernie get owned? Was he too woke or uh, not woke enough or what? 
I mean, there are too many things we don't know about it still. I mean, we don't know. Uh, I mean, the polling is based on a lot of um, very narrow assumptions, a narrow range of uh, questions and uh, variables that people are understanding right now. I, I don't think we're going to get the story for some time now. So we know it's been going on behind the scenes uh, until we have a clearer picture of um, what have been the patterns in people's thinking and voting behaviors. Uh, I don't think we know. There seem to be two main thrusts right now that have coalesced on the broader liberal left. There's the uh, Bernie Sanders did nothing wrong. I mean, there's a hyperbole, uh, but it was stolen from him by the Democratic uh, power elite. You have that on the one hand, and then on the other, you have um, Bernie Sanders had, you know, five years to make his case, and uh, you know he his his campaign was a failure. He didn't reach out to the right voters at the right time. Uh, which of those two do you think is more persuasive, or neither of them? I don't think either is persuasive. Um, I mean, both may have elements of truth to them. Certainly, we know that there was an elite level attempt to shut down the campaign. And that likely had a lot to do with the defeat. And uh, we certainly know that the many maneuvers the establishment took were successful. Um, now, this is a very difficult question to figure out which aspects of the Bernie campaign can be understood to have succeeded uh, in their aims and which ones were limits. And of course, there will be a very fruitless back and forth about, was, as you put it, was it too woke? Was it not woke enough? And so on. Uh, we, we can't really make causal claims like that. We don't really, first of all, we don't have the information. And second, uh, it's impossible to boil it down to one cause. I mean, we know that in many cases, uh, the cultural representation of the campaign, the fact that it did outreach to immigrants, the fact that it represented itself in a way that was very different from the previous campaign, uh, this probably had a very beneficial impact. Um, is it the case that there was um, some kind of deviation from talking about material interests in some kind of transparent way? I, I doubt that. Uh, so I don't, I mean, I don't really know uh, how that debate could possibly be settled. Yeah, I was being a little facetious about it because I'm really sick of hearing people on both sides make that case as if they yeah. even know. Um, Personally, I think it really just shows uh, the need for independent working class institutions that people trust, because uh, when all you have is the Democratic Party and that's the institution you trust to protect you from Trump and the Republicans, you're going to believe them and you're going to vote how they have signaled to you to vote. Right. Like they own the media, the corporate media. Obviously, um, the Democratic Party itself has institutional power uh, and, and like the Bernie Sanders campaign in and of itself could not do what, what, what it's likely going to be like a decades long project of building movements and institutions in just a few years. Like, I just don't think that that's possible. And it's also very demobilizing, even just for electoral campaigns, that if everything was invested in lining up behind uh, General Bernie and uh, everything rested on that victory, then 
this is a very demobilizing moment, uh, especially for people uh, who had just been convinced that they should spend their time working on this. If there isn't any kind of continuity, if there isn't any kind of organization and institution that goes beyond an election that people can still feel a part of and still feel they're contributing to and building, then a defeat uh, at the electoral level is very demobilizing. And that can happen uh, by accident. It can happen by deliberate manipulation. Uh, so any kind of organizing effort has to be independent of that. And it's only when you have that independent base that then you can actually have successes in electoral campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Some people, you know, maybe some people on the podcast right here, maybe, maybe this podcast itself was saying probably since the beginning for two, two and a half years that putting all the eggs in the Bernie Sanders electoral basket might not have been the best tactic. And, you know, it sucks to be vindicated to the extent that millions of people put a ton of energy and time into it. But yeah, I, I don't feel like there's necessarily a successor, quote unquote, to General Bernie out there. And um, I don't think people, except some in the DSA and maybe some other groups, I don't think people thought seriously about what it would look like moving forward without Bernie. Because let's face it, what, whatever your orientation towards the campaign and the movement has been over the last, God, five years now, since 2015, um, the, the, uh, the various like, successes and failures of the Bernie campaign have represented kind of a North Star for every socialist in the country because it was this one way Maybe the other exception is like strikes like happened in, in West Virginia, but it was one big way that we can measure, you know, whether or not by a certain metric, the ideas and the visions of a socialist worldview were getting out there to the public and whether people were accepting them or not. So it's a tough, tough spot we're in right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I read the piece by Daniel Denver saying that, you know, the grassroots organization behind Bernie is the largest leftist grassroots organization of its kind in the U.S. in quite some time and should be used. That infrastructure should be used for other kinds of organizing. I think it remains to be seen whether or not that's going to happen, but I hope they do it like the people that I met when I was volunteering in New Hampshire did not seem like they were going to go volunteer for Joe Biden. Well, you know, I think there's this question that you kind of posed earlier, which is uh, about whether there will be another Bernie. Um, in the very short term, is there someone else in the mainstream American political scene who could... Uh, cause a shift of the kind that we saw Bernie do. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if that's possible. But we do know that Bernie didn't come from nowhere. Uh, Bernie's a product of the new left. Bernie's a product of the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement and the counterculture. And uh, this is why it's very stupid today uh, when people talk about divisions between material or economic issues and cultural issues because, you know, when you have processes of cultural change and the challenge to existing norms and authorities, uh, new kinds of politics become possible. And that's what Bernie Sanders came out of. And uh, that takes time and we should do it again. That is so true. Um, you know what? I'm going to jump next to right to question number five, because you've spoken directly to it, um, which is 
so a prominent strain of thinking I've heard on the left is that in the wake of the Sanders loss, people need to keep on doing mass politics, which is usually code for electoral campaigns and labor organizing and not retreat into subcultural politics like you just referenced and also get rid of all these quote unquote fringe or activist demands, which sometimes it's difficult to pin down what they mean by that. But this can mean a bunch of different things, depending who's saying it, um, like mutual aid, any kind of anarchist prefigurative politics, certainly, certainly bad food, not bombs, boo, uh, prison <laughs> abolition, immigrant justice, like anti ice work, transgender rights, sex workers rights, like basically anything that doesn't help, uh, white working class men in a very immediate way, uh, as well as the realm of actual subculture, like being a punk and listening to crass or whatever. Um, I'm going to guess that you don't agree with this definition of mass politics and the walling off of politics from culture because you just told me. Um, so, so what's your alternate framework through which you view these things? We have to absolutely reject the equation of mass politics with electoral campaigns, which is something that I'm seeing uh, more and more now. And I don't know where it came from, but it's highly misleading. It's possible that there can be a mass politics which engages in electoral campaigns as a tactic. But the idea of a mass politics, of a politics that is of the many, um, that's not a politics which is consistent with delegating your power to a representative. Now, once again, tactically, in certain moments, for certain situations, uh, you may be able to achieve things with it. But mass politics has to be conceived in a much broader sense, and it has to be conceived in a sense which overcomes this uh, delegation of power to a small group. And so to have a real mass politics, you have to talk about building mass organizations, organizations in which people are able to directly participate in politics without having to go through the mediation uh, of, a, uh, of a state apparatus. Now, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, of, so here we have the opposition between um, the existing forms and procedures of, of the capitalist state on the one hand and mass organizations on the other. And mass politics has to be uh, one which is based on the second. That's one opposition. The other opposition would be between, let's say, a mass politics and a subcultural politics. Now, this also rests on a major confusion, which is that masses are, I suppose it's something that's implied by particular interpretations of the word, that the masses are this kind of gray, homogeneous uh, blob in which uh, everybody's essentially the same. All they care about is uh, their paychecks. Um, they live lives which are just reduced to their biological functions and so on. Uh, that's not how people are. Uh, what we call the masses uh, is constituted of many different cultures, many different cultural practices and tendencies and forms of affiliation. And the things people care about are obviously their fundamental biological needs, but they care about many other things beyond that. They care about culture. They care about language. If you want to reach people, and we know already that, you know, the, the fact that you are in the working class doesn't automatically mean you have some kind of transparent class consciousness in which you're concerned with your material interests 
which will be expressed once you can uh, elect a candidate like Bernie. No, people have many different ideas and consciousnesses and ways of understanding society and politics. And you have to actually engage with them at that level, at the level of these uh, representations and symbols and so on. Uh, those are real things. They matter. Uh, if you want to speak to people uh, and convince them to join a socialist organization, to vote for a socialist candidate, whatever it may be, you have to appeal to the everyday material economic struggles, and you also have to appeal to the cultural aspects of people's existence, which form a major part of who we are. Yeah. Uh, as, a, as a student of history, I, I think it really goes to show the poverty of, of this particular conception of mass politics. When you see that, not just in the United States, but pretty much everywhere in the world, uh, what mass socialist movements looked like was not merely a single political figure or just a tendency within a larger party, but it also looked like um, union halls packed on a Friday night. It looked like uh, athletic leagues and bowling clubs. It looked like um, choral groups, you know, and, and movie nights and things of that sort. Anti-fascist punk shows. Anti, thank you, anti-fascist punk shows. Uh, it, it, it enveloped within itself uh, this 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 kind of cultural um, nod that people are talking about, because in essence, you know, the mass doesn't begin or end at the at the at the voting booth, right? The mass is you know creating structures and institutions in people's lives that not just fulfill that political role, but also build on a day to day basis uh, solidarities between people, real core solidarities that are based on culture, that are based on various different types of affinities that all hopefully then together gel into something larger than the sum of its own parts. So this, this idea of mass politics as just voting is, is not only, it seems absurd on its face, but it also flies in the face of everything that we've seen, you know, in the last 150, 200 years of anti-capitalist organizing. One of my favorite examples of a socialist subculture is the German Social Democratic Party. Yes. A classic party that is the example of everyone who wants to go back to this um, reductive model of mass politics, which is centered on political parties and voting and so on. This is an organization that uh, built its whole basis, built its membership base through bicycle clubs and food co-ops and all kinds of activities like that, which would now be uh, sort of laughed off as um, the indulgences of hipsters in Brooklyn or whatever. I, I don't think in Brooklyn you have access to that stuff right now. But no. uh, yeah, but 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 in in late 19th century Germany, that's what members of the Social Democratic Party were doing. That's how they built the party. Yeah, not to mention too. I I just thought of another aspect of this is when you, especially when you you looked at the Social Democratic Party uh, in Germany, but also if you looked at something like the Knights of Labor or the classic AFL in the United States, it, they were also they they created these kind of modes of self organization and activity with this material base. And I'm thinking directly of like. Um, welfare, uh, like internal welfare programs and things of that sort that then became this prefiguration for what the government does in terms of uh, uh, public welfare and social security, right? These kind of um, 
programs were created on the ground by people filling real material needs that workers had when they realized nobody had the money to bury a dead you know union member or family member and they needed to come together to create a means to do that that ends up becoming a model for what's later you know termed the the social democratic welfare state so if we're going to again try to you know take this mass politics model and uh, make it so so narrow right you're also um, you know, removing the ability for the working class to create organizations that prefigure something that can move beyond the sort of alienated, mediated uh, institutions of class society and government that we have today. Yeah, I'm also thinking about all of the Latino outreach that the Bernie campaign did, right? Because merely appealing to people's material interests, which are there are many that are the same across the working class of all different races, but just doing that was never going to be enough. They needed to have Spanish language outreach. They needed to go into communities and talk to people and use some, you know, classic labor organizing techniques as well. But like, it, it just seems like a no brainer to me that you need both. Also leave the punks alone. All right. <laughs> like, Listening to Crass might not be the only way into radical politics, but we all know lots of people who came into it that way, and it's definitely the coolest way in. So, Yeah, and, and as somebody who literally got radicalized when they were 13 by a Rage Against the Machine video about Leonard Peltier, I got to say, that cultural shit, it's important sometimes. Yeah, and you know, it's um, this is like a kind of banality, but I mean, subcultures... Um, are always what drive the mainstream culture forward. I mean, all of this punk stuff, I mean, when I was already by the time that I was in middle school was completely mainstream. So, you know, it's not, I mean, let's not get, let's not get totally uh, ahistorical about subcultures as though right. they're just going to linger in their corner. I mean, cultures change, uh, things appear on the margins. There's no unitary uh, culture. Um, That's right. I mean, what is punk about, really, but being a poser and selling out? Is that a dialectic? I don't know. <laughs> you should also point out, you know, material interest is a complicated thing because what are my material interests in capitalist society? In capitalist society, in the most immediate sense, my material interests are realized in competition with others. Actually winning the competition with other workers for access to a job, access to better wages, and, and so on, that's all my material interests. And if I happen to be uh, someone who makes a higher income, I have legal citizenship, etc., it may be in my material interest to engage in the repression and marginalization of people who are less fortunate than me. I mean, those realize your material interests. So really, there isn't even a ground zero of material interest here that social an appeal to because socialists have to say that we have a greater interest in solidarity with each other than we do in the immediate pursuit of our material interests. And uh, that's constituted through political process. That only happens when you bring people together and you have a kind of program that shows that things can be different. And showing that things can be different is a complicated proposition because, you know, I mean, in this case, the Bernie campaign was able to propose largely around the issue of health care 
that we can see our society being run in a different way. We can see different principles uh, being enacted. And um, that's actually a kind of a cultural phenomenon. That's that the, the, the fact that you can convince people, hey, we can imagine things being different from how they are now. That's something that you achieve through cultural dialogue and conversation and pushing the boundaries of what seems to be possible. And you know what? If teenagers listen to punk music and they think, oh, you know, music can sound totally different from what I thought it could, that actually is a pretty good basis for developing uh, good political insights. Unfortunately, it can also be a bad basis. Mm. But the, 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 this general uh, idea that things can be different from how they are now, that's something that subcultures can bring about. That's something that countercultures bring about. And it can have a political meaning if you organize it in that direction. I totally agree. Um, this this kind of speaks to what I was going to ask about your uh, very good salon piece. We'll probably put a link to all the pieces that I reference um, we will, in we the will. episode description. Um, you debunk the debunkers who posit that there is such a thing as Marxist electoral theory. Uh, we probably have like Jacobin to blame for that, honestly. But... Uh, <laughs> This theory that says people will vote in their material interests given the chance to do so, blah, 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 blah. Um, and you have very effectively shown that a real Marxist analysis shows that a objective uh, or sorry, um, a true Marxist analysis goes against the idea that a objective interests exist and b people will always act to protect them. This is, in fact, a capitalist idea. Um, and people's political behavior, as you say, is much more complex than that and heavily mediated by ideology. Um, and most people think of ideology as someone's kind of consciously held political and social beliefs. But um, can you explain a little bit in your best Zizek voice what ideology actually is and how it functions? <laughs> there are no Zizek voices for me. I, I have a very different conception of ideology from him. Uh, but good, you didn't take the bait. That's good. <laughs> yes, I, I have a classical conception of ideology, but it's one which in the Marxist canon is complicated and you have to read between the lines to get it. Uh, because you can find some uh, instances where Marx and Engels talk about ideology as being a distorted uh, view of reality, which just justifies the rule of the ruling class. Now, that's one way of looking at it. But uh, that's not really a very good explanation of uh, how the various different kinds of consciousness people have actually goes towards reproducing the society as it exists. And that's, the, that's actually the problem. The problem isn't just to say, well, there's this way of looking at reality. There's, there's a bunch of lies that capitalists tell, which justify the existing order. And then when people believe them, they do as they're told. Well, you know, actually, uh, the way that ideology works is that even though capitalists and the media and politicians lie all the time, they don't even have to lie for the system to work. Lying, conspiracies, all that stuff happens. It's all true, but they don't need that in order to reproduce the existing order because there are all of these mechanisms that make it work on their own. Now, the question that ideology is setting out to answer is, 
how do you have capitalist societies in which the wealth is controlled by a small minority of people and everybody else has to work for them? It's a totally irrational scenario in which the vast majority of the population could bring the whole system to a halt any day if they decided to do it, uh, and yet they don't. Now, one way to prevent them from doing so is just by killing them. And sometimes states do that, uh, especially states that don't have the form of parliamentary democracy. They rely on that all the time. But in parliamentary democracies, this is used uh, in marginal cases or as a last resort. Primary mechanism by which the system is reproduced is by getting people to agree with it. And, by, and getting people to agree with it, that's, that's what ideology does. And, and so, once again, this isn't a question of people telling lies. It's not a question of capitalists going out there and saying, look, um, this system actually works for you. Um, I'm not actually wealthy. I'm sacrificing everything for you. They don't need to say things like that. What they, what they have to do is to train us on an everyday basis to defer to authority, to believe that it makes sense that human beings are in competition with each other, that that's a part of human nature, and that any society will have to reflect that. To believe that when we compete with each other, that allows better ideas to be produced and for people to become more wealthy. To believe that when we follow instructions, when we do what the police says, when we do what the um, uh, politicians say, that we have a more orderly and peaceful society. Those are all things that we don't always think about consciously, but we're trained in those things uh, from birth. And we're trained in them not just by being told, but by actually having the everyday habits of sitting in your chair where your teacher tells you and doing what the teacher says, and every day when you do that, you learn to obey authority. And uh, every time that you have to go out and apply for a job and represent yourself in a particular way so that you will get employment, you learn that uh, you, you uh, can only survive by competing, by going on the job market and competing for access to survival. These are things that we're trained in. That's what ideology is. And so um, that's uh, a hugely complicated thing because... The, the, the other angle of this is that for ideology to work, it has to speak to our actual experiences. It has to actually incorporate itself into our languages. And we don't have just unitary ways of looking at the world. We're not completely brainwashed. That's not what ideology is. It's, the idea is not that we are brainwashed. It's that these uh, ways of behaving, these everyday practices get incorporated into a whole complicated and contradictory way of understanding the world. And so, on the one hand, I may believe that I'm constantly in competition with other people and that that's the way that life has to be. But on the other hand, I may also believe my boss is an asshole and he steals everything from me and uh, I shouldn't have to work for him. Many people think both things at once. And uh, so you have to deal with the contradictory character of ideology. Totally. I, I like what you said. Um, I'm going to quote you to yourself now. Uh, the fact that people are motivated by emotions, symbols, and representations doesn't mean they're stupid. It just means they're people. And engaging with people at this level is a good idea if you want to get anything done. I mean, I, even I feel this influence of ideology. Like, I still feel like a crazy person sometimes for believing that we could potentially 
transition to socialism or communism. So uh, I can only imagine how a normal person might feel about it who doesn't spend their days uh, reading Viewpoint and ruminating on the revolution, like fair. And to a certain extent, you know, um, there isn't really a way out of ideology. And, I, and this is like a kind of a scary thing to say, but it's not actually that scary because there's no sense in which our everyday consciousness will just be able to comprehend the whole structure of society and all of the things that have caused us to be where we are. We can never just like have a spontaneous understanding of that at the level of our individual consciousness. We're always going to have some kind of imaginary way of relating to, to society and to the social structure. That's always going to be there. And so it, it, it's, um, it's a mistake to think that we can just unmask everything and reveal the true structures hidden underneath or the true interests hidden underneath. We're always going to be engaged in language and representation. We're always going to be at some level dealing with at, at the level of the imagination. And um, nobody's immune to that. Uh, we're all part of that. That's very true. Um, I think that's a good segue to talking about depoliticization. Yeah. Because there is a connection between ideology and de sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> Depoliticization. <laughs> Forced of habit. I, I, I also can't do it for very long. So you guys are lucky. Um, yeah, you've run out of breath all of a sudden. Yeah. All that sniffing. Yeah. Um, your piece on depoliticization. Um, I thought it was, it was very good. It's been pretty influential in how I think about this stuff and how my caucus and DSA emerge has been thinking about this stuff, particularly um, the Bernie loss, um, especially with regard to why people could say they support policies like Medicare for all, but still vote for Biden. Um, it, it also helps explain why so many working class people don't vote or vote against uh, so, some kind of social democratic policies. Um, now, Emerge defines it in this really good document, this really good piece of writing. I wish I could say that I worked on it other than to read it over, but I didn't. Um, they Is that the one it. that uh, they tweeted out the other day that Emerge tweeted out? Yeah, yeah. Kind of uh, reflecting on where the left goes from here. I read that. That was really solid. Sorry. Go ahead. People should read it. We'll link to that too. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Emerge. I love you guys so much. Um, and they define it as an investment in the world as it is and the lack of a belief that it can change. Um, and in your viewpoint piece on depoliticization, you take care to situate it in history as the natural outcome of the failure of 20th century revolutions to result in anything that we would recognize as communism. Um, you also have a, a, nice, a nice shady example where you say, a powerful contemporary socialist opinion declares that the state and the market are necessary and human life cannot be conceived without them. I don't know if I'd call that a socialist opinion, but it's certainly one that calls itself that. We all know those people. They're yeah. out there. I, I, I guess my question for you is, um, what's depoliticization? I guess I just defined it, but you can expand it if you want to. Um, what has contributed to this depoliticization? Is it ideology? Is it something more? And is there anything that we can do about it? First, I mean, uh, I just have to identify this one point, which is that the state is one thing. The way you think about the state right now is one thing. But 
to believe now in our current situation that markets are anything resembling an institution that human beings should have. I mean, that's just beyond. I mean, people were talking about market socialism for a little while. But if you were to look at the situation we have now and think that markets make any sense, uh, you're just living on another planet. Right now, it's absolutely clear that markets are a totally irrational and disastrous way of organizing the reproduction of human society. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about reproducing our conditions of existence. And to do that through the mechanism of the market is insane. It's absolutely apparent today that it's not only insane, but also suicidal. So I just wanted to point that. I mean, I'm not hearing a lot of market socialists now saying, like, hang on, okay, we, you know, Mark, we, let's still remember that markets should be a part of socialist society. <laughs> well, I hear a lot about that. I mean, maybe I'd like to follow up with Bhaskar Sankara, right? Like he was on the majority report pretty recently, you know, not since COVID, but uh, talking to Sam and Sam sometimes is willing to ask a, to humor me and ask a question that I want him to ask. And even if it's some like something he thinks is some crazy commie shit and, you know, asked Bhaskar because he was talking about this like Richard Wolf co-op world where workers are in control of production, but we still have markets, and, but it's better. And I, I asked I had him ask a question about, well, if we still have markets, um, won't we still be constrained by the vicissitudes of the market and just end up competing and exploiting ourselves and he was like well markets are always going to exist like i don't know what you want me to say about that jamie and mm. i it just it made me really sad because like he is a socialist thought leader you know well i mean look i'm going to go back to the other question here the broader question here which is you pointed out that my argument about depoliticization has to do with the way that we relate to the history of the socialist revolutions and the attempts at socialist construction in the 20th century. And now there are two things that are, there are two perspectives on this history which are both very difficult. It, 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 it's difficult to hold on to either perspective and to simultaneously have both perspectives is even more difficult, but I believe it's necessary. So the one uh, perspective is the one which says that they failed in the sense that the state socialist societies that emerged after the great 20th century revolutions did not succeed in producing a new form of life that went beyond capitalist society and went beyond the state. And let, let's not have any, I mean, this, this isn't something that we should um, be confused about. The vision of Marxism was always of a society beyond the state. Um, and certainly we know that the state did not wither away in uh, the post-revolutionary society. And we know that in many cases, um, these societies regressed back to the market as well. So we have to, on the one hand, understand the failure of that attempt. But then on the other hand, we also have to understand the incredible achievement of these revolutions. The fact that they took on the program of socialist revolution, of the transcending of capitalism and the state. With this program, they were 
able to actually overthrow the existing order. And this actually happened. And um, that fact, the event of the revolution, that's something that I think we have to distinguish from the failure of social structure. So we have to have this complicated position in which, on the one hand, we remain faithful to the possibilities that were opened up um, by, by the, the socialist revolutions. But on the other hand, we have to understand that the attempts at socialist construction failed. And uh, it's not easy to have that kind of ambivalence. But I think it's because of our failure to recognize both of those things uh, that we are in a kind of trap of depoliticization. And then, once again, there are two ways that this happens. Uh, on the one hand, you can say, um, well, you know, uh, these weren't really revolutionary events. There was something wrong with them from the beginning. They happened in the wrong country. They should have happened in the most developed capitalist country. They had the wrong leaders. If this guy had been in charge instead of this guy, it would have turned out better. All of that is wishful thinking. It's not dealing with the reality of history. And then on the other hand, you have the capitulation to the Black Book of Communism mainstream disavowal of uh, the complexity of these societies. Um, and so I think uh, we're in a difficult position now when we look back at that history and our failure to come to terms with, uh, which is manifested in all the different sects and identities that you have on the left. Uh, that's a major factor behind our depoliticization. Yeah, it's so hard. Like, I, on the one hand, I know we need to be critical, right? Marxism is a ruthless critique of everything existing. And at the same time, I I really don't like the kind of some of some of the positions I've heard from like left comms or ultras saying if this was not done in its totality, then it has no relationship to building communism whatsoever. Because I know from reading science fiction, as well as whatever I've been able to absorb of world systems theory, that transitions from one mode of production to another are not a single event, right? The transition from feudalism to capitalism took hundreds of years and was incredibly violent and bloody and had a lot of false starts. And I know I, I probably referenced that a lot on the show because I think it shows us uh, really what we're dealing with and like what what the last transition was like 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 if we are ever able to transition the mode of the dominant mode of production from capitalism to socialism or even communism like it'll probably be the greatest achievement in human history oh for so sure. it's not that surprising that nobody's managed to do it yet right and you know i quote um uh the language of Alain Badiou on the communist hypothesis. And this is an interesting way of putting it because he says, in mathematics, the way a hypothesis works is that people try to prove the hypothesis and they fail. And every time there's a failed attempt at proving the hypothesis, new knowledge is produced that then becomes the basis of the next attempt. And after failure after failure, eventually all of the knowledge that is generated by these attempts makes it possible to generate a final correct proof. Um, I think that's helpful. 
Oh, yeah. So really, I, it's like Bernie Sanders won. <laughs> I will add another point. You know, I think there's a kind of, there is a great affinity between some of the variants you have mentioned of uh, left communism. I, I, I don't like the term ultra-leftism and so on. It's used in a very vague way as a term of abuse without real content. But in the actual legacy of left communism, and then on the other hand, the kind of legacy of social democracy or reformism or whatever you want to call it, there has actually been a kind of convergence in having a very deterministic view of history. The idea that history is going to unfold according to a particular pattern, and that whenever it deviates from that pattern, then something's gone wrong or it's not, it's not following the model and we need to go back to the model. And uh, that's something I actually see um, shared in these two antagonists, you know, in the history of socialism. The one, one side calling the other ultra-leftist, the other side calling the other reformists. But they share this deterministic view of history. But the thing is, history doesn't happen that way. History happens uh, through accidents and uh, leaps and unexpected events. And uh, the art of politics is being able to understand those and respond to them. I think that's very true. Uh, thank you for sticking up for our uh, incredibly maligned comrades who are often tagged as ultras. I'm sure there are people who think that we're ultras. Um, I'm sure there are people who think that we're reformists. But you know what? Sometimes the smartest position is the dialectical one. You can, you can, um, you can call him uh, ultra left if you want, but Herman Gorder was correct in open letter to Comrade Lenin. Uh, all of the indigenous communist movements uh, throughout Europe in the 19 teens should not have been subordinated to uh, centralized direct rule by the Comintern. And there should have been a proliferation of different ideas, different experiments in power, and different types of attempts you know, to organize the working class. Just editorializing, but that's how I feel. This is a safe space for left con. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting document. Uh, it's worth reading. He, may, you know, he makes these points about. He makes these points about. Uh, th this is an interesting thing to consider now, that you know, Lenin talks about how uh, you have to use every means at your disposal, and if that means participating in bourgeois parliaments and bringing the message to the public through that through that means then you have to do it. And uh, Gorder, I, I don't know how you pronounce this name, but uh, I mean, phonetically in English, it looks like Gorder, so. Yeah, uh, we'll go for it. <laughs> yeah. he, he, um, he pointed out that the problem is that the habit of going and voting for a representative is totally contrary to the sp spirit of self-organization mm -hmm. that socialism requires. Socialism requires that people manage their own lives, that they direct themselves at work and at home. And uh, if you're constantly engaged in the habit of delegating your power, that actually undercuts the basis for socialist politics. Now, I, I think Lenin makes a good point, and I think Gorder also makes a good point. I don't think, you know, and you have to think about um, when people back then, you know, 1920, are having these debates, they don't have Twitter, they don't have anything like that. They're like getting a newspaper weeks later and reading about, you know, Lenin writes this thing and then he has a postscript like, oh, I just heard that the German Communist Party split. Hmm. You know, 
like that might have some impact on the points that he made. But you know, it's it's people scattered all over the world trying to coordinate an internationalist movement uh, had major barriers. Uh, there were major problems of translation and understanding between circumstances. And so I think um, it, it's really regrettable if we look back at that history and say, aha, this one guy was right and everybody else was wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. We that can learn from the debates. Yeah, that's right. We can learn from the debates is the right way to take that. One of the things that's bothered me for probably forever is the way that folks take a, an important and canonical text like uh, Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder by Lenin and read yes, it. Yes, total shit post. Oh, yeah. No, if that was Twitter, that was a, that was a serious uh, quote tweet of some, uh, some German counselors. But um, yeah, like if you, if you take that as merely representing some sort of universal principles that are applicable in any historical epoch, uh, under any material conditions, under any class composition, then what you end up creating for yourself, and I think that this is unfortunately the case for much of the Marxist left, you end up creating these sort of abstract principles that might have very little bearing to what happens today except for someone's own self-identification as a certain type of, or indeed the correct type of communist in this, in this era. And I think it's the people have been trying to get around that, try to get away from that for obviously about a hundred years or so, or even from Marx perhaps. But, um, I think what you saw, you know, coming out of 1905 and then after 1917 and deed into the 30s and the 50s is that it's actually the, the working class movement itself and its self activity that throws up these forms like the mass strike, like the workers council that actually ends up scrambling a lot of what even brilliant revolutionary thinkers ideas were, uh, you know, before the working class in motion manages to create these new forms of social struggle that then take on a more universal form that are, you know, adequate to the conditions under which people are struggling. That's right. I mean, this is part of why I'm so excited about my caucus emerge. Like when I first joined it, I, I mean, I'm I'm like instinctually an anarchist, generally speaking. I'm always I tend to err on the side of horizontalism and decentralization. And when I first joined, I'm like, Hmm, I don't know what I'm doing in a caucus with so many Leninist types, but as we have uh, as we have progressed and talked about these things in an open and comradely way, I feel like we are all beginning to think of ourselves as an emerge emergist emergistas first, and whatever tendency we came out of or came into the left through second, because a lot of these questions have not been settled yet. Right. And I think it's going to take everybody who has the end goal of communism, a stateless, classless society, which both Leninists and anarchists do, uh, talking to each other to create some kind of synthesis that we can maybe try next time and hope that it works better than anything that's been tried before. Or even just be prepared to be... Um uh, nimble on our, on our feet, you know, and, and not completely, you know, uh, shit post all over or reject certain types of working class struggle that arise because they don't fit. As I think, uh, Assad was saying earlier, don't fit a certain sort of mode, a certain recognizable politics that we can look back to in the past that had previously existed. Dead ass. <laughs>
why is it not enough for the working class to simply take control of the pre-existing state machinery, assuming that they're even able to do that, considering that our class enemies write all of the rules? The, the great insight of the Marxist tradition about the state is that the existing state uh, has the purpose of preserving the domination of the ruling class. And it does this with a variety of forms, and parliamentary democracy is actually one such form. And so uh, if the working class is able to seize political power in a revolution, then just using the machinery of the state that was engineered to exclude the majority of people from power, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, what use does the working class have for a repressive machine that was specifically designed to preserve the power of the few over the many. So this is an obvious logical problem. Uh, so the idea in the Marxist tradition is that this state has to be destroyed and replaced with a different kind of state, which is really a non-state. That is, it's, a, it's the kind of state which has the bizarre function of undermining its own existence. And that was called in the Marxist tradition, the dictatorship of the proletariat. And dictatorship in this sense did not mean uh, what we think of now as dictatorship as a rule by one person or as you know uh, authoritarian rule. Uh, the words that would have been used for that would more likely have been something like tyranny or despotism and so on. Dictatorship uh, in its more technical meaning uh, deriving from the laws of ancient Rome referred to emergency rule. So it referred to a situation in which the constitution has been suspended uh, for, due to a, some kind of state of emergency. And so you can either have a dictatorship which is temporary, which is designed to restore the existing constitution, or you can have a dictatorship of a period of emergency rule which is designed to generate a new kind of constitution, a new kind of order. And the dictatorship of the proletariat was referring to that. In the state of emergency in which the existing political power has been overthrown, there has to be some kind of process by which a new order is created. And uh, it will mean, for example, um, defending against the possibility of counter-revolution, which happens in every case. Um, the ruling class, which has been ejected from the seat of power, tries to do everything it can to get its power back, and it does so in uh, violent and terroristic ways. And the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat was that you have to prevent this from happening, because the violence that they will cause is far greater than whatever this new um, worker state will do to try to prevent it. Of course, this is a very tricky thing, because um, state institutions don't really have the tendency to undermine themselves. Uh, and it didn't happen. In the history of the, the in the history that followed the actual revolutions, what actually happened is that uh, the existing state machinery was not entirely smashed. It survived. Uh, traces of it persisted into the new society, and then got kind of reincorporated into these new societies. And so you still had bureaucracies, various forms of authority that were left over from the previous order that became incorporated into the new state that was supposed to undermine itself, but ultimately did not. Uh, and so this is a very complicated discussion. Uh, and, and, and you know, there's a false solution. The false solution is to say that, well, 
We just have to go back to the um, underlying principles of the democratic state, which are like liberal rights, civil liberties, etc. cetera. Uh, those are all like um, uh, natural things. They're, 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 they're natural foundational principles. And if we just protect those, then we will avert the risk of, a, of an authoritarian state socialism. Uh, but I don't think that just asserting liberal rights is going to be enough to counteract the material institutions that are persisting past the revolution. You have to actually transform the institutions. And if you, if you just go around saying, well, we believe in rights, uh, you're not actually going to be able to achieve that. Yeah, how do we do that? <laughs> Seems hard, right? Like, I agree, we are going to need to transform state institutions to make them really work. I think, I think the difficulty of this question is why a lot of anarchists have decided that um, the workers' state is kind of a dead end or a bottleneck that has to be avoided, or council communists as well, right? Like, just give all power to the Soviets immediately. Um, and I can... Honestly, I can see it from both sides at this point. It's, uh, I'm going to call that a synthesis. I don't know the answer, but maybe you do, because you're smarter than me. I don't know who that referred to. I don't, I don't. <laughs> I think you're the smart I, one here, man. There's no hierarchies. <laughs> I don't accept that. Jamie, Jamie's doing phrenology and IQ tests over here on us. <laughs> I believe, in fact, you know, Let's say, first of all, that the underlying premise of any egalitarian politics is that everybody has an equal capacity for thought. I mean, this is fundamental, because if people can govern themselves, we have to recognize this capacity for thought that everyone has, and that everyone has in different ways. And we have to recognize that, you know, the, the, the kind of it's a classical political philosophical discussion of who is fit to govern a society. That's the underlying question of politics that everybody asks. And so in, I was referring earlier to categories like tyranny and despotism. Many political philosophers thought that democracy would be the despotism of the majority. You know, you have all of these stupid people who are not fit to say what happens in a society who suddenly get to have a choice. And, you know, you have to prevent that by any means possible. But the uh, defense of democracy that some people made in response was that, look, many people together, when they think together and add their thoughts and capacity for thought to each other, are able to have greater knowledge than one person alone. One person may be highly educated, may have let, read a lot of books, etc., but that person will never be able to achieve the kind of knowledge that they can uh, by joining their thought to others. And uh, that's the basis for an egalitarian and, and genuinely democratic politics. That's such a good answer. I feel like you're a really good teacher. <laughs> Just like, I am, I am now inspired, once again, to participate in the discourse. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so I think that kind of connects with the next thing I was going to bring up about the Vanguard Party and the function of the party. Um, 
We should say that what Marxists mean by the party is different from the colloquial understanding of it as a political party like the Democrats that mainly runs candidates for office. Um, it's a kind of organizational body that I would say theorizes in, in, in an exchange with movements on the ground and helps to focus and coalesce the politics of whatever dual power organs uh, have arisen, which might not necessarily be politically coherent on their own. Um, the example, the classic example is the Soviets in Russia. Like what, what should be, like do we need a party or party-like organ to serve that function? Or should we rely more on these sort of uh, grassroots, rather decentralized uh, groupings like Soviets or whatever you want to call them to do the work of governance themselves? Well, you know, of course, the slogan, all power to the Soviets is Lenin's slogan. And he is also the, the person to whom the idea of the Vanguard Party is attributed. And actually, you see historically this great problem that um, declaring all power to the Soviets and declaring the need for smashing the existing state meant that there was a kind of gap left. Like, what what's going to happen in between the smashing of the state and the uh, reorganization of society around the direct democracy of the Soviets? It's really not clear. And so what happens is that the party fills that gap in the Russian Revolution. The party right, becomes right. the state. And, so, and, and then the Soviets are subordinated to the party state. And that's, that model is finished. We, we, can, we can no longer see any emancipatory potential in that model. However, we also can go back and ask, what question was the party answering? Because we can't accept the idea that the Vanguard Party is just a kind of blueprint for how organizations should be that is invariant and applies across time to every situation. Uh, there was a really specific, and, and if, look, you know, it's supposed to come from Lenin's What is to be done. You read, you read What is to be done. What were you saying before? Shit posting. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, it's you. You have to know the names of twelve different Russian journals that he's uh, criticizing before you even get to any of his own points. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, you, you. I read about people who said I read What is to be done, and then I realized that I had to. What it's, it's like. How did you read this? It was like impenetrable. <laughs> um, but uh, and, and of course we know now. Uh, this isn't this wasn't a secret, but it's been emphasized in scholarship recently that the idea of the party or the um, model of the party that Lenin is advocating and what is to be done was derived 100% from the German Social Democratic Party and from Karl Kautsky and so on. The idea that there had to be uh, the introduction of socialist consciousness to the working class from the outside, from intellectuals, and so on. That was an idea of the German Social Democratic Party. That was the orthodoxy that everyone believed in. Rosa Luxemburg believed in it, everybody else. And so what was Lenin doing? What was he doing that was distinctive in what is to be done? I think the most interesting answer uh, comes from this guy, Sylvain Lazarus. Uh, I wrote a piece about him based on his uh, work called Socialist Think. Um, 
he says Lenin's idea was that politics only happens under conditions. This is like a straightforward way of putting it, but it means something uh, very significant in my view, which is that politics isn't just always happening. It's true that people are constantly engaged, workers are constantly engaged in, in struggles to better their immediate conditions and so on, but that doesn't mean that the idea of a transformation of society, of an emancipatory politics, is actually being put into action. That's something that has to have separate conditions, that, that has to be uh, uh, positively, deliberately, and affirmatively brought about. And I think that Lenin's idea of the party was there has to be some material force, there has to be some organization that brings about the conditions for emancipatory politics to happen. Now, if we were to reduce that to the structure of the party that the Bolsheviks had or whatever, that would be a serious mistake. I think we need to take this insight that politics happens under conditions and then uh, use that to understand the whole wide range of actual uh, organizational forms and practices that would be appropriate for our own situations to bring about emancipatory politics. So yeah. that's I think, the insight. I feel like, oh man, I, I always tend to agree with the last good argument I heard about any of these questions. So uh, I feel like after the rev, I'm just going to be like, oh, whatever you guys want to do, it's cool. <laughs> Don't put me in the gulag, please. I, I'm down for whatever. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk a little more about uh, electoral tactics and their place in the socialist or I should say more explicitly anti-capitalist movement um, and maybe maybe you don't have a, a real uh, strong opinion one way or another because it's too early to tell but do you think that the Bernie Sanders campaign or you know all of the electoral tactics that we've been seeing more broadly uh, has strengthened the left's ability to achieve our goals of, you know, our goals, I should say explicitly, evolve overthrowing capitalism, or is it too, is it just too early to tell? Because I'm so, I go back and forth on this so much, like I'm deeply, deeply agnostic about it. And like I said, I tend to believe the last good argument I heard. So whatever you say, I'm probably going to believe it for a while. <laughs> and I believe whatever Jamie says, so... No, because I think you are totally right to be agnostic about it. I think it's an unanswerable question. But what I want to, um, what I would want to emphasize in response is that I don't think it actually serves useful political ends to be triumphalist and optimistic and to always say, well, actually, we achieved this. Actually, you know, there may have been many genuine important achievements. Um, Certainly, uh, it pushed the boundaries of what is possible to say in American politics. It produced many organizers and many organizational connections. These are all important things. And, and, and it may have policy effects. It may even influence future uh, policymaking. But we also have to be attentive to the possibility that it may mean demobilization. It may mean that the organizational networks and practices were so centered on a campaign which did not achieve electoral success that now they will not outlast it. And 
if we ignore that risk, then we can't overcome it. So, <coughs> excuse me. So I think that um, um, just kind of doubling down and saying we're really still winning, it may be stirring, but uh, it also um, kind of prevents us from grasping what we still need to achieve in the situation. So, I, you know, this is a complicated thing in politics because you want people, on the one hand, to keep feeling motivated and acting and say history is on our side. But actually, history is not on our side. Um, history is a disaster. Uh, that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, if we're going to change it, we have to uh, overcome enormous obstacles. And uh, we, we will not be able to do that if we ignore them. Word. It's so hard. What I've got a, to uh, if I'm a little distracted today, it's because I'm working on uh, History as a Weapon number seven, which will be coming out soon. And the premise of it is going to be uh, this, I think, I think true, true, this truth claim that uh, was put out that history is a disaster and history is a failure. And I think that without getting completely doomer and blackpilled about it, I think that it might be time now in this kind of interceding moment between the kind of uh, the, the, the collapse of the Bernie electoral campaign and hopefully the rise of something else for all of us to make a clear accounting for ourselves and for the movement of what has gone wrong, but also the deep historical structures and tendencies that have brought us to this moment. Because it's simpler than simply, it's not as simple, I should say, as Democrats versus Republicans. It's not as simple as saying neoliberalism, as though that's some sort of shibboleth. You throw that word out and uh, all of a sudden the veil falls from people's eyes and we know exactly what we're trying to confront and why. I think that uh, if anything right now, we should be taking a deep look. We should maybe be pulling back to the extent that we can without you know, losing all of those organizational structures we created and just start thinking very, very deeply about um, yeah, the, the entire 200-year history of what we've tried to do and why we haven't got there. Well, I would add, you know, I say history is a, is a disaster. I don't, I don't believe in a kind of hope or optimism which says that uh, things will turn out well, that we, we, that we can um, predict on the basis of currently existing patterns that things will turn out well. But I think at the same time, we can look back at history and see that disaster has been interrupted and that human beings are capable of things that go completely beyond what appears to be possible. That's right. Um, and what seems to be natural today, the modes of life that we have in this moment are not natural by any stretch of the imagination if you look at the broad sweep and geography of human history. Of course. And also, you know, this is... Part of why we can't just dismiss the legacy of the 20th century revolutions, because there are examples of circumstances in which, you know what, like three people went out to the countryside and organized a peasant army and overthrew imperialism. <laughs> That's a level of human achievement that is hard for us to even imagine now. And I mean, who the people who did it, like, you know, intellectuals, can you imagine um, our, our favorite socialist friends in the media going and living in the jungle and building a radio station and uh, just uh, b 
building a peasant army and storming the cities. I mean, you know, it, pe people have achieved this and, and people have engaged in enormous human sacrifice uh, in the name of the possibility of human emancipation. That has happened. And, um, you know, we have a choice. We can say either, um, well, things are bad. Uh, we can try to just adjust to the reality that we have. Or we can say that, you know, the fact that people lived and died for this before me means that uh, I have to, in some sense, uh, continue that. I have to take that up. I have to take up the idea that emancipation is worth fighting for. Yeah, and I've used this analogy before um, on the show, and I call it the cathedral, not in a uh, neo-reactionary sort of sense. Like, they use the term cathedral, but if you look at medieval civilization, um, one, one group of human beings would lay the cornerstone for a cathedral that they know would not be completed in their, in their lifetimes or the lifetime of their children or their children's children and so on. They knew that it would take 200, 300 years to build this grand, beautiful edifice, and yet they did it anyways because they understood that they were one part of building some sort of glorious future um, construction uh, for mankind. And I think that that's a, a very important, I think, way for us to understand our particular losses and failures and impediments is that if you consider yourself um, part of this this larger sweep of history, Jamie talked about the hundreds of years it took for feudalism to transition to capitalism, then that is, it's not a Martin, uh, Martin Luther King sort of the the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It's saying that I, you know, we are part of this larger stream of humanity working for a common purpose over time. And we're going to fall into that role, no matter what it is at the end of the day that actually comes out in our lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that I pretty confidently believe, it's that capitalism will not be the first mode of production in history to last forever. Yeah. Right. Like the question is what comes after it? And it really feels like we are living in one of those moments where uh, years happen in months or whatever Lenin said about it. But, you know, maybe not. Or maybe this is just a preview of what's to come. One of the deep tensions that exists right now, um, not just for us, but for anybody who thinks seriously about the world is kind of the the lapse, the suspended step between what we know we have to do in order to save the species and the planet uh, and uh, the amount of time that we have to do that. And that's a very, I think, frightening thing that people people feel a lot is, is we can talk about decades, we can talk about generations and kind of working, you know, pushing forward the, the projects of our ancestors and creating our own as part of this larger stream of humanity trying to construct socialism. Uh, but the problem is, is that the time's getting pretty short for that. And it seems that uh, accumulation for accumulation's sake and uh, unlimited growth is, uh, might, just be a, might just be unstoppable in the conditions and, and in the kind of time frame that we have in order to change it. And I'm, I, that's just something I think we all have to grapple with and maybe use that to double, redouble our efforts, but not in a sort of catastrophist um, typically Trotskyist way where it becomes, you know, if you don't throw everything into this every single second, um, you know, you're, you're failing the revolution as it were. Yeah. At the same time, we don't want people getting lazy. It's a balance, baby. <laughs> I mean, this, this is probably a question for both of you, but um, 
what, if any, kinds of movements, tactics, or even just conditions, shifting conditions, do you see right now that give you any hope for change in the future? Um, I, I'm going to guess neither of you want to make prescriptions for what the left should be focusing on right now. But what, what, what gives you hope? Assad, you go ahead first. <clears throat> a difficult question. And as I said, I don't like to think about hope in terms of the future, but rather hope in terms of what mobilizes us now. And um, I think that there was a great deal of hope in um, the unexpected results of the Bernie Sanders campaign. I mean, uh, things were happening that didn't seem to be possible before, and people were being mobilized. Um, right now, I mean, we haven't directly talked about the pandemic, and um, this is really scrambling all of our assumptions and expectations. And uh, I think that Strikes are hopeful. Mutual aid is hopeful. Rent strikes are hopeful. Um, I don't know where they're going. I, and I don't know how people are going to organize under these conditions. Um, so I, I just have to kind of answer with a question mark, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. And I've interacted with some people online because that's the only real forum for debate in this uh, pandemic moment right now. Yeah, well, uh, future historians will have the benefits of threading, at least. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, I've, been, I've been looking at some of the, the, uh, the rhetoric, and um, I don't know, it, it appears that maybe like the right wing of social democracy, let's call them, or, you know, people who are maybe left liberal but consider themselves to be socialists or have a materialist analysis are making a, a mistake um, often in the discussions where they don't see a working class that is a class in itself, right? They don't see a purposive working class movement that's organized, whether around the ballot box or in the union halls, whatever the case may be. So they therefore conclude that the working class does not exist, right? They, they only understand politics in terms of uh, this mobilization of people under their material or common interests. They don't understand or see that uh, class resists irrespective of whether there's a particular political candidate, it's irrespective of the union density rate in the United States or elsewhere, we have as a basic principle, and I think it's a true one empirically, that there are contradictions, antagonisms between classes. And so I'm going to give the question mark too. I, I honestly don't know because as Assad said, you know, everything's been scrambled, but we do have to recognize that irrespective of what's happened over the last five months or five years, the working class as uh, as a class within society, as a class uh, in itself but not for itself, is basically, it's still there. And those antagonisms still exist. And they will keep expressing themselves because that is integral to how capitalism operates. And so if it's our task, our task at, uh, at the minimum 
is to try to recognize these moments, try to recognize these self-organized structures that the working class puts up, try to involve ourselves in it, of course, because we're not separate from that struggle, but also try to theorize and think about what what this uh, present, what sort of forms are being thrown up to us and how we can understand them as they relate to other forms, you know, how geographical regions relate to others, as the, how the class composition changes the way that struggle works and where we think things might go in the future. So in a sense, I'm not saying we'd be stenographers, but I think that theory is only it's only theory if it has practical implications for the socialist movement moving forward and potentially, you know, winning at the end. Word. Yeah. I mean, okay. Maybe this is a digression, but reading um, some of what you've written about the party aside uh, made me feel a little bit better about being a podcaster. Right. Because <laughs> we need that are, these days. Like, you know, there are, vulgar workerists out there who uh who think that if you are not you know doing union organizing or whatever if you're one of these uh soft-handed uh media types that you aren't contributing anything and you know there it's still nah. yeah sorry sorry it's, i was gonna say not... if you're not a horny-handed son or daughter of toil right it still feels like a little bit embarrassing to tell people that this is what I do for a living. Um, and I am also an organizer, but I think I'm better at media than organizing, if I'm being honest with myself. It, it, it made me feel like we all have a role to play. And everybody who is sincerely committed to this project does have something to contribute, no matter who we are or where we come from. So. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, anybody who's actually participated in politics knows many different kinds of things need to be done and different people are good at different things. And some people are not good at certain things and making them do them may not be a constructive use of anyone's time. I know, for example, in your caucus, there are some people who I have participated in political organizing with before. Uh, he will know if he's listening exactly who I'm talking about. But you know, we have people who can go to every meeting, like if you're organizing action, will go to every meeting of every organization, let's say on campus, and try to get people to come out for the strike. You know, there's no way you're going to get me to go to every meeting, sit there for two hours, you know, and listen, use my evening for that. I, it, will, it will just uh, deplete me. And I probably won't be very effective. Uh, so some people are great at it, and they do that. And um, if you can reach people um, and spread ideas, uh, that's also something we need to do. I'm trying my best. I think we're all figuring it out together. Also, I feel like a lot of the people making this argument are often media types themselves. So it kind of feels like the Spider-Man meme. Yeah, I'm going to wrap it up with a shitpost question. Hell yeah. Give it to when, us. Wherein I ask, is Noam Chomsky a liberal? <laughs> That's that seriously the question you want to ask me? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you passed the test. <laughs> if you reject the premise of the question, that means you're correct. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> 
Uh, there's been a lot of use and abuse of Noam Chomsky over the last couple of months. Uh, it's convenient how he's dragged out by Democratic Party operatives and media figures in the you know, liberal sphere whenever he becomes useful in order to do some sort of moral blackmail on the millions of voters who aren't particularly excited about either of the candidates and think Joe Biden happens to be a sexual assaulter. So look, I, you know, I practically learned politics at Noam Chomsky's knee. When I, did I. You know, I read everything I could find of his. I thought this whole, you know, anarcho-syndicalism thing was great. I went in for that all the way. Um, and uh, he is a liberal in the sense that he believes that anarcho-syndicalism is founded in the principles of classical liberalism. He says that explicitly. And, um, you know, at a certain time I thought that made sense too. And I, I thought that you know, sometimes you would see him criticizing Marxist theory or postmodernist theory, whatever that is, as being like, you know, just uh, complete gobbledygook, um, obscurantism and so on. And I thought, yeah, this is a really interesting critique. I want to like read more about that. So I would read all of the critiques of theory and postmodernism from this like rationalist perspective. And ultimately, I realized that I like reading that stuff so much, but actually, I like the theory. Mm. So then it's just like, okay, I'll, I'll read the theory itself, and actually I'm a little more convinced by that. And so I, I became convinced that um, there are underlying questions um, about the character of society and the character of the knowledge that we can have about society and the political effects of that knowledge. There are meaningful questions about that which theory asks and tries to explore, uh, which are excluded by the kind of rationalist uh, liberalism of Chomsky. And while I would completely, uh, I, I would defend him as a highly principled person uh, who has um, intervened in profoundly meaningful ways on political questions for decades before I was born. Uh, but I think that he, um, he can't propose an actual politics because he maintains a kind of idea that um, once you reveal the facts that they will change that will change the situation mm -hmm. that's the underlying rationalist liberal kind of framework I would say and that I think is uh, I, I'm not going to caricature it by saying you know using liberal as a slur but I'm going to say that I think that that is uh, limited, that prevents us from understanding what politics will actually take. Well, that was a very substantive answer to my shitty joke question, <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, I, I agree with you that um, just becoming conscious of how fucked up everything is, even if everyone just became a communist overnight, that wouldn't necessarily produce revolution, right? Um, I, I also think that all of the liberals who are current, who, who trot out Chomsky once every four years to tell you to vote for the corporate Democrat should be required to read manufacturing consent. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I, 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 I think I, I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to go in on the old man. Uh, I celebrate his uh, 80 something years on this planet and especially the interventions he's done on the media. And also, of course, uh, anti-imperialism, because he was central to a lot of my understanding of how the world worked when I was a younger man. And uh, yeah, I'll appreciate that forever, even though I've, I've moved on a bit. 
No, absolutely. A lot of people today, I think, don't appreciate the importance of anti-imperialism. And anti-imperialism was my entry point into politics. Same. Chomsky yeah. has been consistent on this. Uh, and that's crucial. But I think also people who are bringing him up about, bringing him up now in defense of voting for a Democrat or whatever, also watch his debate with Foucault. Because, you know, mm. Foucault is just like looking at him with a devilish grin and saying, well, what do you think about Mao Zedong's concept of human nature? And this is just a glorious thing to behold. Mm, I'll have to check that out. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's classic. Absolutely classic. Well, I think with that, we are going to bid adieu, Assad. This was a really, really interesting talk. Good discussion we had here. Is there anything that uh, you want to plug before we head out? Uh, read Viewpoint. Uh, that's all I have to say. And thanks for having me. Oh, of thank course. you so much for coming. Oh, and buy the book. Obviously, Assad has a book that I would very much like to read. I've heard good things about it. Me too. Um, once again, the book is Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Oh, also, I should say um, this will be out in time. Andy and I are going to be moderating a panel on coronavirus and the future of work as part of Virtual Red May. Huh. We were going to go to Seattle for this uh, month-long leftist programming, but it's going to happen virtually on May 7th at 6 p.m. So I will also put a link to that. Excellent. And uh, we're trying to do more Twitch. We're trying to do more streaming because everybody has all the time in the world now during this pandemic. So we'll do notifications on Twitter and on the Patreon page. But it's uh, twitch.tv slash the Antifada. And we actually have some video copies of past talks we've done, like our new uh, series on reading Capital Volume 3 called Spine Check uh, and also some other kind of more casual conversations. But we hope to see folks there. Hell yeah. All right. Thank you so much for coming once again. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about, Asad. So uh, thank you. All right, thanks to both of you. All right. We'll do it again sometime. Thanks a lot, man. Later. All right. Bye.